Welcome back to the Magic Story Podcast. I'm your host, Heartless. And I'm your other host, Natalie. This is the podcast where we recap the fiction story of Magic the Gathering and add our own flavor text along the way. We are currently in season four, which follows the story of March of the Machine. Today, we dive into episode four of the main story titled Beneath Eyes Unblinking by Kay Arsenal Rivera. Okay, so we have a lot to unpack in this one. So we're going to just jump right into it. Join us as we head into the multiverse. Okay, so a quick recap for what's happened in this season so far. In episode one, we were behind Elish Norn's perspective, who is the mother of machines, and has started her invasion into the multiverse. And she has turned, corrupted some planeswalkers onto her side, which she has referred to as her evangels. Among these include Jace, include Vraska, Nahiri, Ajani, and Nissa. And she also has a praetor working for her named Atraxa, who we might see in this episode. These evangels working for Elish Norn have gone to their respective planes. So, for example, Nahiri went back to Zendikar to bring it into the fold. And Ajani is going uh, to convince the Theros gods to come into the Phyrexian fold as well. So they kind of went off into their respective realms to try and spread the Phyrexian influence all over the multiverse. And in episode two... We saw Kaya, Kaito, and Tyvar Kell return to Dominaria and meet up with Chandra, Liliana, Renan Seven, and Vivian, who were all waiting for news about what had happened on New Phyrexia. Kaya kind of gave the bad news to everybody, and Liliana returned to Strixhaven back to her school, and Chandra, along with Renan Seven, decided that they were going to go back to New Phyrexia and save Nyssa. And then in episode three, which I'm still crying about, we saw the invasion reach an all-time high in Kamigawa. And Kaito and Kaya had to defend against a Phyrexianized Tamiyo. And ultimately, Boseju was destroyed. The entire city of Tawashi was just obliterated. And ultimately, in order to save the plane, the Emperor, the Wanderer, had to kill Tamiyo um, in order to save the plane, which was so incredibly sad. Um, and that I, I'm, I'm still, I'm still crying, shedding tears about what happened in episode three. And so uh, me too. the stakes Natalie, are high. <laughs> yeah. The stakes are high. And I guess we're just going to have to continue today. We're going to find out what's happening in the other planes of the multiverse. Last episode, there was a phrase that stuck out to me. Kamigawa was bleeding. We saw that plane, the whole city of Tawashi, was completely ripped apart by Phyrexians. Boseju was destroyed. It was bleak beyond words to just see it fall. And unfortunately, Kamigawa is only one plane of many more out there who are faced with the same threat. In this episode, we're going to the plains of Kaldheim, Kaladesh, and Nukapenna where all three are about to face the Phyrexians head on. We've never seen these planes before on the podcast, but never fear. We'll give you some context as we venture into each one. But fair warning here, we are going to end with some pretty massive cliffhangers in this episode. 
the war is going to become overwhelming. And obviously, we just can't get to it in all one episode. But without further ado, let's journey to one of these planes and meet up with our planeswalker friend, Tyvar Kell, the prince of Kaldheim. So Kaldheim is, above all, colorful. The landscapes are gorgeous. Imagine a northern aurora, ferocious mountains, the gleam of the old gods, spirits of animals thundering in the earth, the crash of the sea against the rock. It is the home realm of Tyvar Kell. I mean, obviously, he's the prince, our elf planeswalker who we have been following since season three. When Tyvar returns to Kaldheim, he planeswalks to a land called Skemfar, the land of the Kaldheim elves. Kaldheim is made up of many different lands, many different kinds of people, elves, dwarves, giants, you name it, they all live here. It's kind of like if the world of Vikings met high fantasy. So Tyvar Kell is perfectly at home in a ship on the sea, very connected with the animal spirits of his world, and his planeswalker abilities are connected to the natural world. He can transmute natural materials, so like for example, he can change rock into water, or water into rock, or cover himself in thorns, or make sprouts burst from the ground. Tyvar tends to use these abilities to his advantage during combat, which is a good thing, because the second he steps back into Skemfar on Kaldheim, the war has already started. The Phyrexians are here. Immediately, Tyvar launches himself into battle, cutting through his enemies, searching for his brother, Harald. Seeing that his people are no strangers to war, they fight bravely against the Phyrexian invaders. But I want to highlight here that Kaldheim has never seen Phyrexians before, so this foe is completely new to them. I also want to take this moment to remind everyone listening that Kaldheim is the original home of the World Tree, the very thing Elishnorn has recreated to serve Phyrexia, her version, of course, being called the Realm Breaker. Now, Tyvar can see it in the distance. The World Tree is massive, so it dominates the realm a sanguine ophidian. Ophidian is a type of snake, by the way. We both had to look that up. All right, so a sanguine ophidian, so imagine a really big type of snake, the size of a mountain strangles the world tree. White armor, glacier thick, protects it. And now that I'm mentioning the world tree, I want to highlight that serpents are revered here in Kaldheim. In fact, Tyvar even has a tattoo across his chest of the cosmos serpent. Tyvar presses into the fray. Our planeswalker is not daunted by war. In fact, I quote here, war drums beat in time with his own wild heart as he pushes his way into the melee. Glory drives his limbs. He ducks the scythe-like limb of an enemy, changes his own arm to metal, drives it through the thing's head. An instant later, he's swaying out of the way of an axe as it takes out another. A cheer ringing out behind him gladdens his heart. The end of days has come to Kaldheim and the elves of Skemfar meet it head-on. In the Bedlam, Tyvar finds his brother, Harald. In the midst of fighting the Phyrexians, Tyvar and his brother greet each other. Harald has this dry sense of humor about the whole thing, which I just love. And Tyvar gets him up to speed on what exactly they're fighting. I've been to their home, brother, he says. It is lifeless, without song. This isn't an enemy the elves can vanquish alone. For Tyvar to admit that the elves can't do this alone, I mean, Kaldheim's different realms have always hated each other. There's some pretty bad blood between them. It's just 
monumental. Just as he says this, the entire cosmos of Kaldheim seems to rip apart. The earth opens beneath them and Tyvar uses his ability to build a rock-like platform his people can safely stand on. From the sea nearby, Kaldheim's ships approach. With the shifting earth, the sea crests over the shoreline and surrounds them. And the entire world seems to crack open in this turbulent mix of rock and fissures of light and the sea, all amidst these crevasses that swallow elves and Phyrexians alike. Realmbreaker is just relentless. The World Tree had always fissured Kaldheim and made what they called the cosmos more unsettled. And the denizens here who travel along these omen paths are called omen seekers. But I think the connection between the world tree and Realmbreaker is just making this worse. It's way more chaotic and volatile. Kaldheim is literally falling apart before our eyes. I just have to say this scene was so cool to read where Kaldheim was just kind of fissuring apart in these like bursts of light. And you can tell that the world tree and the Realmbreaker are kind of fighting each other for dominance on Kaldheim. It was just a very vivid and very cool scene to read. Totally. Totally agree. And Tyvar, in this moment, knows he can't fail. His magic is holding his people afloat as the world collapses, waiting for the ships to get close enough to board. It takes tremendous effort on his part. And I have to mention, even during all of this, the fight with the Phyrexians continues. Luckily, these omen seekers of Kaldheim are used to using the fissures, using the cosmos to their advantage. So the ships arrive and the elves hold on. Aboard the ships are all of Kaldheim's various peoples. Dwarves, ghosts, spirits, undead, Carfell, barbarians, giants, trolls, they're all here. As the elves join them aboard the ships, Tyvar using his magic to help them, he recollects how abnormal it is that the other Kaldheim realms have come together. And I quote here, New Phyrexia planted the seeds of doubt and fear deep within him. The oil and the changing of his newfound comrades nurtured it. But this, this true unity, this is an axe. I just love that line so much. Me too. (laughs) It's like this beautiful contrast to what Elishnorn believes unity to be. Like she wants unity to be this divided multiverse that she's going to take by force. But we are seeing the divided realms of Kaldheim come together by choice. And that choice is way more powerful than what Phyrexia will ever be. And with that, Harald and Tyvar and every other person aboard those ships band together in this moment of perfect, powerful unity against their foe. Harald addresses everyone as the ships begin to move towards the open cosmos, the omen paths broken open by Realmbreaker, to meet their foe head on. Of course, in totally typical Viking fashion. I mean, this is call time. You have to. Warriors, Harald calls. When Harald spoke, even his most hated enemies waited to hear what he had to say. White swallows them. For an instant, they enter the cosmos, dazzling and infinite. Unearthly beasts lope alongside the boats. Wolves, ravens, bears, even a squirrel. Today, the Valkyries will have their choice of heroes. Today is the day the Skalds shall sing for centuries. Will your descendants name you a hero or a coward? Light once more. Tyvar doesn't shut his eyes, no matter how the patterns sear at his irises. When at last the light recedes, they find themselves above a churning ocean. Somehow, they're airborne. He leaves no time to question it. 
only lets it thrill his blood. Valkyries fly alongside them toward the sharp barbs of the invasion tree, yet to find their home. Divine arrows streak light across the reddening sky. The world tree looms, its foul mirror descending down, down, down. From here he can count every bump of its spine, every pod nestled within. There must be thousands, tens of thousands maybe, each with their own complement of soldiers, and each of these soldiers a fearsome foe. This was an enemy almost unstoppable. Worse, those who died in defense of Kaldheim would rise, corrupted, to fight for the invaders who sought to destroy the land they once called home. They descend into this war zone, essentially. Axes in hand, meeting the Phyrexians blade for blade. Tybar reminisces the power of the serpent. But then he's face to face with a serpent-like Phyrexian, one of Elishnorn's creations, big enough to snap a longship in his jaws. Tybar steps up to the helm of his ship, looking down at this giant serpent. In the flickering light of what might be Kaldheim's last war, the edge of his blade gleams bright. Below him, the mouth of the serpent, Within it, knew Phyrexia, and all his fears made manifest. He doesn't like being afraid. With the seething song of battle at his back and a cry from his chest, Tyvar leaps from the ship. However the story of this day ends, the sagas will tell he was no coward. So from there, we transition away from Kaldheim. With this massive cliffhanger, by the way, like, oh my gosh. I know, I did warn y'all this episode was going to have cliffhangers. We'll just have to wait and see what happens to Tyvar Kell and the rest of our Kaldheim warriors. But for now, we switch to a plane we haven't seen yet on the podcast, Kaladesh. Kaladesh is the land of the artificers. Natural mages are rare here. Most of the magic of this plane is built. It's why Sahili is so good at what she does. She studied here. And this is Chandra's home plane. Now imagine an ancient cityscape, stone cathedrals and sandstone streets, a wash in a desert with a deep blue sky. And amidst it all, entwined into the towers and even in the skies, are all sorts of complex metallic artifacts. Elephant structures have a lattice of brass and gold, bright blue glass constructs filled with ether, thopters flying across the sky, and floating ship vessels. There is elegance to everything. The gold and brass that dominates the artifacts of this plain arc in delicate, intricate vines, and many of the buildings take on hourglass shapes with pristine glass. Sahili values beauty in her work, and looking at Kaladesh, it's clear why. So this is Chandra and Sahili's home plane, but we actually are behind the perspective of a new character we haven't seen yet on this podcast, Pia Nalar. And if it sounds familiar, that's because she's Chandra's mother. Pia Nalar is on the city council of Jirapur, which is the Kaladesh city we are in as the Phyrexian invasion is underway. The opening lines of this storyline really tell a lot about Pia as a character and how much she's been through leading up to this moment. 
PNLR has spent the last 10 years of her life fighting for a better Kaladesh. Most of that work's been undone in one day. Pia and Sahili had spent the last few weeks leading up to this moment, ever since Sahili had returned to Kaladesh after the attack on Urza's tower in season two, preparing for the Phyrexians' attack. There were artificing defenses laid out all over the city, immense and powerful traps. Pia, as she was working on these defenses with Sahili, was so confident that Chandra and the rest of the Gatewatch was just going to handle it, that the invasion wasn't ever truly going to happen here. But she was proven wrong. The Realm Breaker, just like on Kaldheim and the other planes, had opened a portal to Kaladesh, and now the Phyrexians were wreaking havoc on Jirapur. All those artificing traps she and Sahili had worked so hard on? They only slowed the Phyrexians down, not stopping them at all. And the invasion is just so immense and so powerful that the swarms of Phyrexians descending into Jirapur seem to obliterate the streets of the city. This is so hard because we just saw Tawashi last episode get destroyed, and it's just really difficult to witness. Like, I love history so much, and a big part of that for me is the buildings and the the architecture. Yes, like watching a city like Jirapur, which is so iconic, just come crumbling apart before our eyes. It's just... It, it just is one devastation after the next. It's just, it's like you said, it's difficult. This this scene was just so catastrophic right away. And and it is, it, and it's difficult for Pia to witness as well. Pia watches her city, the one she spent the last decade working on, just crumble apart. She steps out into the streets, leaving her home, when the invasion officially begun in search of Sahili. Skyships overhead fire their cannons at the invading branches, and explosions paint the red sky gold. Shards of porcelain rain down upon the streets. The invasion is just devastating. Pia watches a skyship, captained by one of her friends, a person she had known who had just the other day said he'd protect Jirapur with his life and had flown thousands of flights before with no issues, just be swiped out of the sky by a Phyrexian. Just like that, gone. And while Pia is trying to figure out how to find Sahili in the chaos, she gets to witness something Sahili calls Operation Golden Scales, which is essentially giant lizard mechanisms that Sahili built that come to life from within Jirapur to fight back against the Phyrexians. I mean, that's a pretty cool image there, I have to admit. And also, I love the nickname Operation Golden Scales. It's just, it sounds so Sahili. Here's a description of them from the story. The shining teeth along its jaw are each the size of Pia's forearm. When it stomps its feet, the stone beneath cracks. And it is only one of many. All along the streets, other bronze attack lizards spring up from the earth. Some are the size of small dogs. Some take to the skies like thopters, but all roar their defiance at the coming Phyrexians. And while this is all happening, Sahili appears in this type of cruiser and drives up alongside Pia and shouts for her to get in. Pia does. And while they're driving away from the scene where these lizards and the Phyrexians meet head on, I highlight here that there is Phyrexian oil everywhere, and it will infect the lizards too. So the threat of the Phyrexians here is just pretty devastating. All their defenses, once taken down, will rise again to fight for the enemy. Yeesh. So Sahili and Pia and the others of Kaladesh are at a pretty massive disadvantage here. 
To make matters even worse, here's another quote from the story. Pia ducks as Sahili takes them between the legs of a massive phyrexianized lizard construct. Metal scrapes against metal. The cruiser's sides dent and distort despite Sahili's best efforts. Oil drips onto the trunk's lid. Pia tries not to wonder how long it will be before the cruiser is corrupted too. And they decide then that they have to defend what's called the Aetherflux Reservoir. We had talked about the power of ether briefly in season two. It's the essence of the blind eternities and it's immensely powerful. We think the Phyrexians might understand its importance or else feel a pull toward the ether stored there, Sahili tells her. If you'll notice, they're all heading straight for it. So Pia and Sahili take off down the street where the Aetherflux Reservoir is. But along the way, Pia witnesses the horrors of Phyrexia. The Kaladesh guards that had been stationed outside the reservoir are now fighting for Phyrexia. Her stomach wrenches at the sight. Like a sinister parody of Sahili's design aesthetics, they are filigreed in white porcelain, half metal and half flesh. One of the men sports a large hole in the center of his head, one that Pia can see clear through. Only his ears, scalp, and chin remain. It looks as if he is a needle meant to be threaded and the razor his arms have become only affirms the notion. Despite this hideous alteration, his chest rises and falls with unseen breath. His head, such as it is, is turned toward the reservoir. This is the first time Pia is seeing a former friend turned Phyrexian. Sahili says to her that there's nothing they can do for them. They're gone. And it's now that Pia asks Sahili the fate of her daughter, Chandra. Is she okay? And Sahili responds, saying the last time she saw her, Chandra was all right, and that that was recently. But Pia is a politician. She can tell when she's not being given the full story, and Sahili is not giving Pia the full story here. Just when Pia's gotten Sahili to give her more details about Chandra, someone flies in next to Sahili's cruiser. It's Baji, an old member of the Renegade, driving a skimmer, which is kind of like a thopter, just a little bit more scrappy and handmade. Sahili ushers Pia to leave the cruiser which is on the ground in the middle of danger, and get in the passenger seat of Baji's skimmer. When one of the geniuses of Keladesh tells you what she wants to do, it behooves you to listen. Besides, when it comes to revolutions and crises, you must be able to improvise. And so, without either vehicle slowing down, Pia hops over from Sahili's cruiser to Baji's skimmer. And I love how this is just a passing sentence, but proves Pia is much more than just a politician. She is bravely confronting this scenario with hardly a box. I mean, I'm not sure I would have the guts to jump from a moving car into a plane, each going like side by side very fast. So I think it's fair to say we know where Chandra gets her courage. I'd already liked Pia from the start, but I think this is where I kind of became her cheerleader. Yeah, Pia is amazing. So the state of the skimmer is, it's not good. It's not the most solid thing in the world, not by a long shot. Now that they're in it, she wonders how it's flying at all. Nuts and bolts rattle around them, and the seat's little more than a strip of leather on hard, hastily shaped metal. The back seat's so narrow that the sides bite against her shoulders. However, Baji is good at driving and steers them higher toward the sky. Jiraper's streets and the war zone chaos beneath them are out of reach. Sahili asks Baji if the skimmer will hold, and Baji is super confident it will. And just when he says that... What? 
Why'd you pause? Well, Phyrexians can fly, Natalie. The skimmer is not the only thing in the sky, and they're everywhere. So I'll just read to you what happens next. Whatever he meant to say is lost in a gurgle when the javelin punches through the window and impales him through the chest to his seat, blood-soaked tip stopping only a hair's breadth from Pia. Swooping through the air above them is something that might once have been a bird. Now it fights for Phyrexia. Realization sets in. That's no javelin. It's a quill. Alarms howl, drowned out by the air screaming in through the hole in the ship's cockpit. Slowly, it begins to tip to the side and then twist nose first, plummeting toward the ground. Pia's stomach lurches at the shift in momentum, the nauseating weightlessness. Without thinking, she squeezes into the pilot's seat, wedging the quill free from the leather. Baji's body has her half pinned. There's no room to navigate. The console's an incomprehensible hodgepodge of welded together parts. There are two Phyrexian birds on her flanks and more ships all around. This isn't good. And that's before factoring in that Pia Nalar has never even flown one of these things before. But she isn't about to give up here. Not when it comes to keeping Kaladesh safe and not when it comes to her daughter. Chandra's going to come to tea next month. Pia's going to be there to meet her. If she can just get through this. So, okay, hold on. We're seriously not going to find out what happens to Pia? She is literally careening out of the sky after just witnessing her friend die. And that's where we leave her? Yep. Just like with Tyvar on Kaldheim, we leave on a massive cliffhanger with Pia, Sahili, and all of Kaladesh. I did call it, I guess. This episode is like, do you like cliffhangers? Because we got cliffhangers for you. Man, this is intense. And it's only going to get more so. The last plane we journey to in this episode is New Capenna. Now, New Capenna is a modern fantasy cityscape, but it's very different than Kamigawa's Tawashi we saw last episode. And it's also different than the city of Jirapur we just saw on Kaladesh. Imagine huge glass skyscrapers bathed in gold trim. The most extravagant of extravagance. Straight out of a ballroom. Like, imagine a jazz band is playing on one side of the room while a shady deal happens on the other. It's really a sprawling metropolis. It's just huge. New Capenna has a complicated history. But long story short, this city has been fueled by a substance called Halo in their recent history. We saw Halo last season when Elspeth brought some with her to protect her fellow planeswalkers from Phyrexian oil. Halo is colorful, a rainbow of bright colors that can take all forms, liquid, crystal, gas, and it repels Phyrexia, as we discovered last season. In fact, it's poisonous to them. Remember in episode one, when Elish Norn had commanded all of her evangels to different planes to bring them into the fold? She had commanded Atraxa to come here to Nucapenna to eradicate this plane and its noxious air. Atraxa had been furious to be sent to a place that could kill her just by breathing its air, but she'd done as the mother of machines had commanded. And that fury is still apparent, maybe even more so, when we step behind Atraxa's perspective in her invasion of Nucapenna. From the second Atraxa arrived, Nucapenna drew its nails down her pristine carapace, 
A city built, reaching ever upward, the atmosphere crackling with a disgusting energy, crawling with a horrible diversity of life. Everything about it is anathema to her, to Phyrexia. Atrax's orders are to scour this place, to turn Nucapenna into a vessel for Phyrexia. And she equates this conquest into this plane as consuming it, as saving it. And I really got vibes from that episode last season where we were behind Ixhel's perspective, but really... Yeah, yeah, me too. Which yeah. was really fun. So Atraxa watches the organics of Nucapenna try to take up arms against the invading Phyrexians. And obviously the initial resistance fails. Atraxa's forces are overwhelming. The Phyrexians climb over the cityscape, consuming everything in their path. Beneath all the chaos, a thought echoes between Atraxa and all her fellow Phyrexians. Harvest them. And when I read harvest them, I just it, got, I got yeah. chills. It was like icky harvest them it's just it 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 is true to phyrexian nature to do that but it was just like hearing it like screech through phyrexian minds over harvesting these ugh, it just yeah. <laughs> it gave me the heebie-jeebies well that's what's so terrifying about phyrexia in general right is that you know it's like what we saw in kaladesh these amazing glistening golden lizards immediately become phyrexianized like every weapon you throw at them every soldier you throw at them they can turn it right back against you and that's what's so terrifying harvest Ah. (laughs) harvest for phyrexia it's just so ruthless it's so ruthless so for atraxa norn's orders were clear everything that draws wretched breath on this plane must be harvested for parts and so they will be but Atraxa sees a use for them before tearing them asunder. After all, somewhere within this monstrosity of a plane are the remains of her predecessors. Finding them is part of her assignment. The minds of the newcomers open readily to her. Maestros, they call themselves. The thrill of their new bodies ripples through the entirety of the invading force, lending them strength against those who foolishly resist. Yet this is not the answer she seeks. Not the answer Phyrexia needs. Deeper into their minds, she ventures. And within them, Atraxa finds something curious. Okay, before we go on, though, I want to clarify something here and what Natalie just read. The Maestros are one of five family factions that rule New Capenna, and each family faction values something different. The Brokers, for instance, are all about contracts. They're like the lawyers of New Capenna, just as an example. And the maestros are all about beauty. They are artists and keepers of museums. Their power and wealth resides in the artifacts and trinkets that they keep. And here's a quote from the story. And again, this is from Atraxa's perspective. Over and over, that word, that idea, it never comes alone, always with images or sounds or tastes, paint on canvas, stone shaped by a studious hand flowers opening in the night, a keening creak from a wooden instrument. These things, she surmises, must be beautiful, and what is beautiful must be important. Often it is the first thought they have when they look at their new forms, the first word that pops into their minds. But what is that? Why are they so preoccupied with it? The strength of their convictions spread through the invading forces, each mind amplifying the last, the word rings within Atraxa's skull until she can no longer escape it. And that word is beauty. This is so interesting. As the maestros become Phyrexianized, 
their minds joining into the fold, becoming one. This concept of what they see as beauty cannot be shaken, and Atraxa hates it. The concept of beautiful being described to a thing of organic creation, like paintings and sculptures and artifacts, is blasphemous in the eyes of Phyrexia. Only Phyrexia can be beautiful. So Atraxa delves into the maestro's minds and find their most prized museum in the city, the center of the maestro's operation. Here, she sees these paintings and sculptures and artifacts beholding organics and just goes on a full-on rampage to destroy them all. I mean, to say Atraxa is angry at all of this is an understatement. She's full-on irate. Yeah, I mean, she's really just like smashing through the museum angry. Like devastation. Yeah, like she's furious. And through all this, as Atraxa is destroying the heart and soul of what made the maestros the powerful faction family that they are, their concept of beauty within their Phyrexianized minds still doesn't change. And that's what's fascinating to me. Atraxa's philosophical approach to her destruction, why this makes her so upset, is fascinating. The Phyrexians continue to fascinate me, even after all the horrors they've committed in this most recent destruction of my personal favorite New Capenna faction on that list of horrible crimes. First, she's distraught that these organic artists have shaped metal, which is sacred to Phyrexians, into figures of organic weaknesses. To her, it's a mockery that metal serves an organic's purpose and image, like absolutely not to her. To Phyrexia, that is that is terrible. Like, like... Metal should be only for Phyrexia, right? And and for organics, for these maestros to have used metal to their whim and shaping organics of their world. Like, Atraxa is absolutely appalled seeing this. And secondly, the vanity, the selfishness of these works confuses and enrages her. These paintings, in quotes, often portrayed only a single individual. Even those with groups did not portray more than a dozen. And Atraxa says here, Why extol the virtues of so few when it is by many hands that great work is done? And these statues, even more individual than the paintings. I find it super ironic that Atraxa is so upset at these creators for being self-centered and vain and creating things that they find beautiful just for the sake of it. When Atraxa is a creator herself, she created Ixhel, her quote-unquote perfect creation, and has no problem calling Ixhel her creation, like she owns them somehow. Had Atraxa not been a Phyrexian, I think she would have fit in wonderfully with the maestros. Their values are pretty similar, just for different purposes. I agree with that. Now, Atraxa is still ripping apart the Maestros Museum and destroying every piece of art she can find. I mean, she's literally taking her spear to them and just like slashing stuff, breaking stuff. She's just, I mean, it really sounds like a scene from a movie. And here's a quote from the story. The newly formed scream in the recesses of the Phyrexian mind, but only for a moment. That part of them is dying and understands that this is for the best all will be one. These works no longer matter. And something within her just compels her to keep going. Like she can sense the maestros are hiding something here, something deep within their museum. And she's right. They absolutely are. So this is when Atraxa enters the last deepest room of the museum. And here she sees ancient, long dead Phyrexians posed here like artifacts, 
displayed like trophies. Here, there are no strange objects. Here, there is no paint, no mortal loudly announcing their own individual self. Instead, the shapes she sees are pale imitations of glory. A lopsided axe upon the wall, a mock warhound carapace upon the plinth. Images that occlude the glory of completion. Norn told her Phyrexians had once been here, but this speaks to the cruelty organics think themselves above. Beautiful. That word again in her mind, that awful word, but there is nothing beautiful about any of this. Do these people worship failure? Do they look upon the bodies of those that came before and marvel at them? The memories of the maestros are a battering ram. Groups gathered around these remains, drinking and eating and chittering with their wet lips and glistening tongues. Wrong. 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 This place, the Phyrexians who were too weak to see their mission through, the fleshlings who mock them. Beautiful. That awful word they have for this cannot mean other than wrongness. So, yeah, Atraxa makes short work of this place. She absolutely obliterates it until nothing remains but rubble and debris. And feeling somewhat satisfied with herself, Atraxa leaves the Maestro's Museum, utter destruction in her wake. But once she emerges onto the city streets, into this sort of courtyard, she is face to face with these stone angels of New Capenna. And this powerful rage overtakes Atraxa here because she realizes she does find these angel statues beautiful. She strikes out at them on instinct, crumbling the statues, beheading them, attacking them over and over and over with her spear until they are nothing but dust. And it's not until the heads of these angel statues are gone that Atraxa brings her attention back to the invasion of New Capenna, into the rest of the Phyrexian mind that had been going on during this whole time. And we kind of realize that Atraxa had almost isolated her own emotions during all this. She was acting as a single unit of pure rage as opposed to the unity of Phyrexia, which I found really interesting. Like Atraxa was acting kind of alone here. And so anyway, she resumes the chaos, assuming the acting general of the invasion forces, leaving the platform courtyard and the museum. And as she does, well, I'll quote here. But the seraphs remain, watching her go, with their visitor hovering among them in a haze of color. They, too, speak among themselves. Why not stop her? asks the visitor. It is not yet time. It does not feel like the right answer, but the visitor cannot disprove it. Have faith. It's almost here, the end. You'll know what to do when we've gotten there. Once again, with a nameless visitor watching the scene with some cryptic message at the end, are these the same people who were watching Chandra and Renan Seven a few episodes ago from the shadows? Maybe. We don't know. Uh, for me, this episode was a pure roller coaster ride. And no and kidding. Everyone <laughs> is just a drop. It's just the stomach drop every time. Yeah. Like cliffhangers. We don't know what happened to Ty Varkel on call time because he was going to go into this serpent, like this giant serpent. We left off right there. We have no idea what happened. And we have no idea whether. Pia survives her crash in the skimmer, which is going, which is like careening into a Phyrexian invasion in Jirapur. And we also don't know if Sahili was successful in protecting the Aetherflux Reservoir. We have no idea. I don't even, we don't even know if Sahili's okay. I hope she is, but we haven't seen her since Pia hopped in to, to be with Baji in the skimmer. Oh. And then this, and, 
and we know that the maestros are gone, which is absolutely heart-wrenching. Well, not only the maestros, I mean, that was just the group that they talked about on Nuka Pena. I was under the impression from reading the story that they probably got to others, too. They probably did. It's just that Atraxa, Which is, yeah, Atraxa was very, very fascinated with the maestros. And I stand by my theory. I think the reason she was fascinated with them or infuriated with them is because she kind of is a maestro herself. And <laughs> it's like she found things beautiful and that kind of really, like, she was kind of obsessed with that in like the anger sort of way. But had she not been a praetor, I think she would have been a, a sensational maestro. Well, we hope you enjoyed Beneath Eyes Unblinking by K. Arsenault Rivera. As always, you can read this story and more at mtgstory.com. And if you did like this podcast episode today, please give us a review. Reviews help us out so much. We're a newly relaunched podcast, and so every review matters. We appreciate you listeners out there. Stay tuned for our next episode as we continue March of the Machine. But until then, have have a magical magical day. day.